From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Time, and this hour, Ron Elving on President Biden at the NATO summit. Also, the boat packed with migrants that sunk in the Mediterranean, a young man from Pakistan who survived saw some of their photos. This is my friend, this is my friend, this is my friend, this friend, all day, all day. Very, very strong, very smart, very beautiful, my friend, all day. This hour, an investigation is the Greek Coast Guard to blame. Also, billionaires buying sports teams for their taxes. And Robert Reich on what he tells parents who ask him what to tell their children who are short. First, our newscast, it's Saturday, July 15, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. A judge in Iowa is considering whether to put on hold the state's new law outlawing most abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. Governor Kim Reynolds signed it yesterday in front of thousands of conservative Christians in Des Moines for a forum attended by Republican presidential candidates. A hearing was held yesterday asking the measure be delayed while its constitutionality be litigated. A decision most likely won't be announced until Monday at the earliest. Abortion in Iowa had been legal up to 20 weeks of pregnancy. Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville continues blocking military promotions over a Pentagon policy on abortion. Pat Duggins of Alabama Public Radio reports many Republican voters support him. John Wall is chairman of the Alabama Republican Party. He says GOP voters in the state think Tommy Tuberville is doing the right thing. Wall cites a Marist poll conducted in January that shows 60% of Americans oppose using tax dollars for abortions and says Alabama voters are even more opposed. So if you look at that, this is actually standing up for the people, which is the job of our elected officials. It is the job of a U.S. senator, and I think Tommy Tuberville is, is reflecting the desire of the people of Alabama. Wall says the Alabama GOP plans to pass a resolution in favor of Tuberville when it meets next month. For NPR News, I'm Pat Duggins in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. The heat wave blanketing much of California may push temperatures to 120 degrees in Palm Springs this weekend. The town is struggling to keep its homeless population safe. From member station KVCR, Madison Almond reports. There are about 350 homeless people in Palm Springs. To stay out of the sun, many have been huddling under a freeway overpass or beneath bushes in a dry creek bed. Roman Ruiz, who coordinates the city's homelessness response, says during the daytime, people can go to the city's cooling centers. But at night, when temperatures still hover in the high 80s, there aren't enough beds. They do have about 25 beds that they're able to provide on a first-come, first-served basis. The city plans to add 50 more beds, but not until next year. Forecasts say daytime temperatures won't dip below 110 degrees over the coming days. For NPR News, I'm Madison Ahmed in San Bernardino, California. Belarus says members of Wagner, the Russian mercenary group, are now training in Belarus, weeks after its brief uprising in Russia. Alexander Morasko is a member of the Ukrainian parliament. He finds this development troubling. We continue to be worried because the truth is that even from the perspective of international law, Belarus is accomplice of Russia in the war of aggression. And of course, we would like to prevent Belarus from taking sort of a full-scale support of Russia in this war of aggression. Morasco was interviewed by the BBC. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Senator Elizabeth Warren and Congressman Jim McGovern will tour flood-damaged farms in western Massachusetts today. The State Department of Agricultural Resources estimates 1,000 acres of crops have been lost following the storms this week. The state says at least 75 farms have been affected. The damage assessment is still underway. Mosquitoes carrying the West Nile virus have been found in Brookline and in Worcester. Experts say the heavy rainfall, followed by days of hot weather, have helped create good breeding grounds for the mosquitoes. State epidemiologist Dr. Catherine Brown says you can take measures to help contain the insects. You should look around your yard and any place where you see like an empty flower pot or a bird bath or something that's going to accumulate water, you should make sure to flush that water out. No human cases of West Nile have been confirmed so far this summer. Boston's new electoral map is likely to stand. Plaintiffs in the lawsuit that forced the city to redraw voting districts notified the court yesterday that they will not challenge the new map. Mayor Wu and the Boston City Council were forced to come up with a new plan after a federal judge decided the previous map may have relied too heavily on race. A celebration known as Negro Election Day takes place today in Salem. The event at Salem Willows Park commemorates one of the earliest systems of self-governance adopted by the black community back in the 1700s. Event organizer Doreen Wade says the festivities with historic links to Salem resonate with her today. Black people had a voice even during slavery, and that voice should not be taken for granted. So we need to make sure we're registered to vote, and we need to make sure that our voices are heard. Last year, the state of Massachusetts approved a measure officially recognizing the third Saturday in July as Negro Election Day. Last night in Chicago, the Red Sox beat the Cubs 8-3. to They play again this afternoon. Tonight in Foxborough, the Revs host D.C. United. Some showers and thunderstorms around today in Boston. Highs in the upper 80s. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thank you for being with us. The culture wars came for the U.S. military budget this week. The Republican-led House passed a bill authorizing next year's Defense Department budget, but with provisions. One curtails diversity programs. Another would block current policies that pay for service members to travel for abortions. NPR's Ron Elving joins us. Ron, thanks for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. Uh, This legislation usually gets support from both parties, but... Listen to a segment from a floor debate. This is uh, Ohio Representative Democrat Joyce Beatty on Thursday. I'm old enough to remember when black officers, when women were not allowed to serve. You are setting us back on this floor on both sides of the aisle. We have people of color. We have people who have served, women who have served. She was specifically addressing Republican Eli Crane of Arizona, who had proposed an amendment to prohibit mandatory diversity training, uh, a caution he uses offensive language here. My amendment has nothing to do with whether or not colored people or black people or anybody can serve, okay? It has nothing to do with color, your skin, any of that stuff. What we want to 
what we want to preserve and maintain is the fact that our military does not become a social experiment. Representative Beatty then got the attention of the presiding officer. I'd like to be recognized to have the words colored people stricken uh, from the record. I find it offensive and very inappropriate. Is the gentlelady asking for unanimous consent to take down the words? I am asking for unanimous consent to take down the words of referring to me or any of my colleagues as colored people. And she got that unanimous consent. The words were stricken from the record. Representative Crane later said he had misspoken. Ron, help us read what's going on here. There's so many things going on here, Scott. Eli Crane dredged up a phrase from the past generations ago that has long since become derogatory and provocative. A more important is the substance of what these amendments in the House bill are attacking. The programs they're upset about are the kind of diversity training millions are familiar with from public school and from many, if not most, places of work, a basic sensitivity programs to help people in the military work together across differences. And, of course, they're also upset about abortion policy in the Pentagon. These add-ons, if you please, don't seem to stand much chance in the uh, in the Senate where the Democrats have a slim majority. So why is this, in a sense, a story at all? The Senate is not expected to approve any language of this kind in its version of the bill. But we do have a parallel effort there that's been going on for months. First-term Senator Tommy Tuberville, a Republican from Alabama, has blocked hundreds of military promotions since February, going on close to 300. Now, he's upset that the Pentagon has been granting paid leave and paying travel expenses when military personnel have to go out of state for an abortion. Now, Tuberville has not been finding much support in the Senate, but he has the backing of some House members, and those were the people who got... This issue inserted in the defense bill, so no accident. Tuberville provides inspiration for them. They provide backup for his one-man crusade in the Senate. But in the Senate, rules allow him to block all those nominations, including the new commandant of the Marines and possibly three more members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the months just ahead. House Republicans also proposed amendments that would uh, ease up on U.S. support for Ukraine. This is while President Biden was at the NATO summit. The efforts failed, but can Ukraine count on U.S. support uh, the way he has so far? He can count on the support of President Biden and his administration and most of Congress. Uh, but there are rising voices on both the left and the right questioning our commitment in Ukraine. Uh, President Zelensky is savvy enough about all these political angles that he knows what Biden can and can't say about full membership in NATO until the current war with Russia is resolved. So Zelensky left the NATO conference earlier this week showing anger that the alliance did not admit Ukraine or say exactly when it will. But he is getting the weapons that he so desperately needs and the ammunition. And Ukraine's future as part of NATO is clear. NPR's Ron Elvin, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. We turn now to India, where over 100 people have died in flooding and landslides caused by monsoon rains. Much of the flooding over the past two weeks has been in the northern parts of the country and parts of New Delhi, the capital, are also underwater. We go now to freelance reporter Sushmita Patak, who's based in Delhi. Sushmita, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. What do you see there in Delhi? Uh, we're seeing really dramatic scenes here. The Yamuna River that goes through Delhi has been flowing at record high levels. It was at about 680 feet on Wednesday, and that has inundated nearby low-lying areas. 
thousands of people have had to be evacuated. You know, they've been shifted to relief camps. Traffic came to a halt in several places. It's also affected the city's drinking water supply. And some important landmarks like the iconic Mahatma Gandhi Memorial are also waterlogged. Um, the area near India's Supreme Court is also waterlogged. And TV news footage shows waste deep water in some places. Um, there's also this 17th century fort that's also flooded. It's called the Red Fort. Uh, this is where the prime minister gives the Independence Day speech every year. And uh, what's striking is that originally the Yamuna River used to flow right by the fort. It used to feed moats surrounding the fort, but the river changed course over the years. And now it seems like the river has reclaimed its original path. And Delhi residents are getting a glimpse of what the fort looked like several centuries ago. What's life been like over the past couple of weeks? Over the past two weeks, there have been really intense spells of rain across northern India. So that is several states. Most of the damage has been in the Himalayan state of Himachal Pradesh. That's a mountainous area about 300 miles north of Delhi. Key highways there are damaged due to landslides. Um, you know, we've seen, again, very dramatic footage of bridges and whole buildings just swept away in overflowing rivers. Tens of thousands of tourists were stranded there. It's a tourist destination. And uh, the army has been called in for rescue operations there. Most of the deaths also occurred in Himachal Pradesh, and more heavy rain is forecast across a number of states in the coming days. Coming to Delhi, last weekend, Delhi had the third highest amount of rain recorded in a single day in July. That was about six inches, according to India's weather department. It didn't rain much last week in Delhi, but a dam north of Delhi has been releasing water, and that's caused the Yamuna River to overflow. I was there uh, last Tuesday. I was going on a bridge over the river, I could see this huge expanse of brown, muddy water. And by Thursday, the river was flowing at an all-time high. It started receding, though, on Friday. Of course, summer is monsoon season, but uh, are we seeing the effects of climate change? You're right. So this is monsoon season. So heavy rains are expected during this time of the year. But climate change is making intense spells of rain more frequent. Um, and that's increasing the likelihood of landslides and flash floods especially in vulnerable mountainous areas like Himachal Pradesh. Uh, that state has also seen a lot of construction activity in recent years. And experts are cautioning now that, you know, infrastructure development should be mindful of the fragile environment there and the risks associated with it. Climate change is also making heat waves more common. So overall, extreme weather events are increasing in India because of climate change. Reporter Sushmita Patak in Delhi, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. A new sign has appeared outside the gorilla habitat at the Toronto Zoo. For the well-being of gorilla troop, it admonishes, please refrain from showing them any videos or photos as some content can be upsetting and affect their relationships and behavior within their family. The zoo grew concerned after a 14-year-old gorilla named Nasser seemed especially dazzled by videos held up by visitors on their cell phones. I'm not really sure what the content of the videos was, Maria Franke, the zoo's director of wildlife welfare, told us. Was it gorillas in the wild? A cartoon? I don't know. But it was like Nasser was a little boy. All he wanted to do was watch. It made him distracted, not interact with his family or, you know, be a gorilla. He was just so enthralled with the phones and the videos. Does this sound familiar? Our human DNA is a 98% match to gorillas, after all. There have been similar stories in recent months about gorillas at Chicago's Lincoln Park Zoo and the Louisville Zoo, captivated by on-screen diversions. 
Gorillas get bored in captivity, explains Rob Laidlaw, a biologist who's executive director of ZooCheck, a Canadian animal welfare organization. Even in wildlife sanctuaries that give animals sunlight, greenery, and room to roam, they're looking for any opportunity they can find to engage intellectually. This is a challenge for zoos. They keep animals safe for conservation and research, and so visitors can marvel at and care about them. But how do they make zoo life a little more engaging for the animals? Maria Franke says the Toronto Zoo shows their gorillas nature programs, classy documentaries from the CBC and BBC. They seem to especially enjoy watching other gorillas. I've tried to imagine which movies might make wholesome screen entertainment for great apes. King Kong? I'm not sure I'd risk their reaction. But Gorillas in the Mist about Diane Fossey, who famously said, the more you learn about the dignity of the gorilla, the more you want to avoid people. Of course. The Planet of the Apes films in which gorillas eventually overthrow their malicious human captors, I think they'd offer two opposable thumbs up. I don't know if gorillas would enjoy The Godfather, but I wonder if any silverback who screened it would tell their family group, take the banana, leave the cannoli. And you better be listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818 and coming up in about 20 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, the Biden administration says it will forgive debts held by some 800,000 federal student loan recipients who were low-income borrowers. This is separate from the debt relief plan rejected by the Supreme Court. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. It's 78 degrees in Boston, some showers and thunderstorms today, highs in the upper 80s. A chance of showers tonight, a chance of showers and thunderstorms tomorrow, low 80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. And the Cabot in Beverly with Thriving Families, a morning of fun and education for families and young children, free on July 20th. Register at thecabot.org. I'm Nora Rahm with these headlines. Meteorologists say roughly one in three Americans are under heat advisories or warnings. Life-threatening temperatures are expected throughout the weekend, Health officials are warning residents to limit outdoor activities. A heat wave also continues in much of Europe. The European Space Agency is tracking the situation and says that ground temperatures in parts of Spain could reach 140 degrees. And South Korean officials say at least 22 people have died in floods and landslides in recent days. At least 14 people are missing. Hundreds have been forced from their homes. I'm Nora Rahm. NPR News in Washington.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. It's been a month since hundreds of migrants died when their boat capsized off the coast of Greece. It was one of the deadliest incidents in the Mediterranean in years. Now a new investigation by the UK's Guardian newspaper and its media partners shows that Greek Coast Guard officials failed to help for hours, and their actions may have contributed to the boat sinking. Reporter Lydia Emanolidou has been on the story for NPR and joins us now. Lydia, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. This was a fishing trawler packed with more than 700 people. Who were they? Yeah, these were mostly people from Pakistan, Syria, and Egypt. They had set sail from Libya for Italy. Their trawler ended up in distress off the coast of Greece. The Greek Coast Guard responded, and then the trawler sank in the early hours of Wednesday, June 14th, and some 500 people are believed to have drowned. Greek authorities say they didn't record any video of this incident. They were just too busy with the rescue. How did, uh, how did you and your reporting partners piece together the story? It took a lot of work from a group of us at The Guardian, the German broadcaster ARD, and the Greek investigative site Solomon. We spoke to survivors, we did digital reconstructions, reviewed court documents, and spoke with Coast Guard sources. And what we found is that Greece bungled what should have been an all-hands-on-deck rescue operation in the hours after the fishing trawler was first spotted. When the Greek Coast Guard arrived many hours later, it was already dark. And it appears they tried to tow the boat out of Greek waters, presumably so this would no longer be their problem, and that this led to the vessel capsizing. And we found evidence that afterward, the Greek Coast Guard may have tried to cover up its actions. Yeah. And remind us of some of the details of the people on board that ship. As we mentioned, most of them were for Pakistan, Syria, and Egypt. One survivor I talked to, uh, a young man who didn't want us to use his name because of the possible repercussions of talking to the media. He said that when he set sail from Libya, people were packed in so tightly on that boat that they couldn't even stand. And he saw people die of thirst. They were like that for about five days. And then in the early hours of Wednesday, June 14th, he felt the boat suddenly jolt forward. Here and there, here and there. She be, she... The ship rocked right, left, right, right left. left. Right, left. Then the boat tipped. He heard people screaming. He found himself in the water and was eventually rescued. But he showed me photos of 15 friends and family members who were with him, who he hasn't been able to find since. I am so sad. This is my friend, this is my friend, this is my friend. This friend all die, all die. Very, very strong, very smart, very beautiful, my friend, all day. And of the hundreds of people on the ship, only 104 survived. Lydia, the allegation uh, the ship was being towed is serious. Mm -hmm. It's been made before. What do survivors say about that? 
Survivors say that around midnight, the Greek Coast Guard vessel told them it would direct their boat towards Italian waters. Those who were on the upper deck of the trawler and could see what was happening, they say that the Coast Guard attached a rope to the trawler and towed it twice. And they say that this second towing is likely what caused the boat to sink. One of our partners, the investigative nonprofit Forensis, they mapped the boat's movements in those crucial final hours before the sinking. They used coordinates from obtained court documents and other sources. And this map corroborates survivors' testimonies and undermines the Coast Guard's version of events. The findings show the trawler changed direction and speed during some of these key moments. How does what you've been able to map out and report meet with the Greek Coast Guard's account? It doesn't. The Coast Guard has denied towing the boat. We analyzed everything from their press releases and sworn testimony to the coordinates in court files. We found holes and inconsistencies that Greek authorities have refused to explain. And they didn't answer any of our detailed questions either, saying they can't comment on an ongoing investigation. Any indication of a cover-up? Well, yeah. So survivors were interviewed twice first by the Greek Coast Guard and then by investigating prosecutors. In the first batch, there are identical parts in several of the testimonies, almost a copy and paste, and they don't mention towing. But in the second batch given to a prosecutor just days later, some of those same survivors did mention towing and blamed it as the cause of the wreck. So to put this as plainly as possible, what we found is that the Greek Coast Guard played a role in a tragedy that was likely preventable. Reporter Lydia Emanuelidou, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Scott. NFL owners are expected to approve the sale of the Washington Commanders next week to a group led by Josh Harris. The Commanders have been a losing and scandal-ridden team in recent years, but they'll still cost $6 billion. Josh Harris knows the sports business. He already owns the Philadelphia 76ers basketball team and hockey's New Jersey Devils. Wealthy sports owners like Josh Harris are familiar with the provision in the U.S. tax code that allows them to essentially write off almost the entire purchase price of their teams. Robert Federici is an investigative reporter at ProPublica, and he has reported on this. Mr. Federici, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I... I, I... I think we all got to know, how do these write-offs work? So, you know, the, the tax code is such that when someone buys a business, they're able to deduct almost the entire sale price against their income during the years that follow. The underlying logic is that, you know, the purchase price was composed of assets. And, you know, typically these would be buildings and equipment and patents, and these degrade over time. And so they should be counted as expenses. But in you know professional sports that tax treatment is almost entirely detached from the real economic uh situation you know teams most valuable assets are virtually guaranteed to regenerate because sports franchises are essentially monopolies their tv deals keep getting bigger players keep playing for them but but they're allowed to treat these assets as if they are degrading like a piece of equipment in a factory so, you know, to use an example, uh, Steve Ballmer, uh, the owner of the Clippers, he bought the team for roughly $2 billion. And what that means is that's that's roughly a $2 billion write-off for him in the years that come. You know, every indication we've seen is that they're profitable in real terms. 
But the IRS records we obtained, you know, Steve Ballmer's tax returns show that during a recent year period, he was able to write off $700 million in income because of his ownership in the Clippers. So not only does, you know, during those years, not only did Steve Ballmer not have to pay any taxes on any real world Clippers profits, but he can also use the the tax write-off to offset his other income. It's a very good deal for him. I, I, I mean, you know, people like Steve Ballmer, who were very rich, will point out, well, you know, there's a reason why I'm rich. I know how to take advantage of these things. Doesn't every employee, and I'm thinking now, for example, of the players, uh, aren't they able to take advantage of certain loopholes too? In our in our story, we looked at a real world example based here in Los Angeles, where I am. So first, LeBron James in 2018, he made 124 million dollars in income. He paid a, fe a federal income tax rate of 35.9 percent. So now take the example of. Adelaide Avila. She's a concession stand employee at Staples Center, or I, I should say Crypto.com Arena. As it's Whatever it now. is now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So she reported making $44,000 that same year. The government took a 14.1% cut. So now Steve Ballmer, owner of the Clippers, so that same year, he reported making $656 million. And the records we reviewed, his you know tax records show that his tax rate was just 12%. So that's a third of what LeBron paid, even though Bomber made five times as much as him. And, and he's paying a lower tax rate than somebody who works at the concession stand. Yeah, so that's what's really shocking. So even though Bomber's income was almost 15,000 times greater than her salary, he paid a lower effective rate than even her. Wow. What about the argument team owners sometimes make that uh, still when they sell the team, that makes them liable to a tax crunch there? Yeah, so, so that's a good point. And it's one that advocates for team owners raise. The idea is that once they sell their teams, they have to pay back the taxes that they avoided over the years. Uh, but even if owners ultimately repay the taxes that they skipped, they've essentially been deferring payment of those taxes for years, sometimes decades. And what that means is that, you know, they received an interest-free loan, essentially, from taxpayers, from you and me. Um, and, you know, an owner could have reaped, you know, huge gains by investing that money, you know, instead of paying it to the government. But then there's a catch to that. So if the owners die while holding their stakes, and that's often the case, right? They just hold on to it. You know, it's in their will to go to their children and grandchildren. The tax savings never have to be repaid. You know, however many hundreds of millions of dollars you would have had to pay if you had sold the team, it disappears. That liability just vanishes. Hasn't always been this way, has it? Congress had initially excluded sports teams from its standard amortization rules, which we've been talking about. But following lobbying by uh, Major League Baseball in 2004, uh, sports teams, both you know from the MLB and other leagues, were granted the right to use this deduction as part of a tax bill that was signed by George W. Bush. So, so now team owners can write off almost the entire purchase price of the teams that they own. Robert Federici is investigative reporter at ProPublica. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Scientists have made a surprising discovery in a sample returned from an asteroid. NPR's Jeff Broomfield reports it contains tiny particles from 
far beyond our solar system. NASA researcher Ann Wynn studies dust. A general comment that I get is, I've got dust under my bed you can study. <laughs> I'm like, no, I don't study that kind of dust. <laughs> I study stardust. Now, you've probably heard somewhere before this idea that we're all made of stardust. That's because stars forge nearly all the elements in the universe. The atoms that make up our bodies were themselves made inside the core of a star somewhere else. The core is extremely hot, and then as you go out in the atmosphere beyond, it's cool enough so that gas can form and aggregate into tiny grains. Cosmic dust motes. Sometimes the star would explode, blowing the little grains across the galaxy like dandelion seeds. Other times the grains would drift away on their own, traveling on the stellar wind into deep space. Probably a lot of them do get destroyed, but some of them survive and they make it to our region of the universe where our solar system formed. The stardust swirled and clumped and eventually became part of the sun, the planets, and yes, us. These materials all played a part in our life here on Earth. The problem is the original dust grains were very fragile, and so when they became part of this new solar system, they were broken up and blended. Their origins were lost. Scientists like Anne Wynne want to know more about where they came from. Yeah, that is one of the big questions in cosmochemistry. Then in 2019, a Japanese spacecraft visited a little asteroid called Yugu. It scooped up a tiny sample, and an even tinier portion of that sample found its way to Wynn's lab. She fired up her best dust analyzers and got ready to nerd out on some asteroid grit. I kind of thought, you know, the results I would get would be kind of run-of-the-mill but as her team writes in the journal Science Advances, the sample contained organic molecules from deep space, pieces of ancient rock from the very edge of our solar system, and many tiny grains of perfectly preserved stardust. I cannot tell you the excitement I felt and just euphoria almost. Because these grains are part of the story of how we got here, blown on an interstellar wind long ago. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. Though I dream in vain in my heart, it will remain my stardust melody, the memory of love's refrain. Okay, Carmichael, and you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. When humans trash just might be an avian's armoire, urban birds have long used a wide assortment of building materials to build their nests. Galvanized nails, barbed wire, even sheet music by B.J. Lederman, who writes our theme music. Now a team from the Netherlands has documented a number of birds' nests around Europe that are built from anti-bird spikes. These are strips of metal spikes that people attach to the eaves of buildings to try and deter birds from roosting there. Alka Florian Heemstra, a biologist at the Naturalist Biodiversity Center in Leiden, was the lead author of the paper and joins us now. Mr. Heemstra, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much. Can you describe a few of these nests for us? The very first nest I saw was the nest from, from Antwerp in Belgium. Mm -hmm. And we also describe it in the paper as 
the biggest nest we found, a nest that included more than 1,500 nasty metal anti-bird spikes. 1,500. So that's like a bunker for birds. How do the birds wrestle them out of the material? Well, that's interesting. This nest was made in the courtyard of a, of a hospital. Mm -hmm. And we also went to the roof of the hospital. And there were a lot of bird spikes, but all the bird spikes closest to the nest, they were gone. And just a trail of glue was present. But yeah, I think the magpie ripped them off the roof and used them in its own nest. And actually, just making a nest out of anti-bird spikes is already hilarious. But they even use them in a very smart way, as magpies do not only have a bowl, yeah. a nest bowl, but also have a roof over their nest. And for this roof, normally they search for thorny branches to actually prevent predation from the nest, so to ward off predators. However, in cities, there are not a lot of thorny branches, but there are a lot of anti-bird spikes. Yeah. And this is, I think, crazy. They use the bird spikes in the same way as they were intended to be used, namely to ward off other birds. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> and I think that's just perfect. My gosh. Now, any birds more likely than others to use these spikes? Yeah, so a, a few species in particular use these spikes. We have examples of, of crows using them and examples of magpies using them. And so this is within the family of the corvids, and those are, are very smart birds, birds which are very intelligent, which are also using tools. They can uh, do a lot of problem solving. And so they also solved the problem of having no spikes in the city centers. Don't they have to worry about getting hurt using these, uh, what I'll refer to as hazardous materials? Yeah, so the whole outside of the nest is covered with these bird spikes, but within the nest is this very safe place made with soft material. So the young ones are safe, but I think well, the parents may struggle a little bit to handle the material, but they manage to find a way, which really wow. reflects how animals now are adapting to our urban city life. Mr. Heemstra, I, I moved to say good for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's magnificent to see these rebellious birds actually fighting back. And actually, when you walk through the city, suddenly you see them everywhere. And actually, like, it's a little bit sad, I think, yeah. that we are so actively trying to fight our urban biodiversity while we also could, like, embrace those beautiful animals. Well, I'm impressed by your work, to be sure, but mostly the birds. Thank you. Thanks so much. Alka Florian Heemstra is a biologist in Leiden, the Netherlands. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Like a bird on the wire. Like a drunk in a midnight choir. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Massachusetts Department of Agricultural Resources estimates 1,000 acres of crops have been lost following the storms earlier this week. The state says at least 75 farms have been affected. The damage assessment is still underway. Keep in mind, this weekend on the MBTA, the Green Line is suspending underground service. That's today and tomorrow. That's to allow crews to conduct inspections of the tunnels. Shuttle buses are available, and the Orange Line is an option for alternate service downtown. Blue Hill Avenue in Roxbury turns into something of a block party today as part of the mayor's Open Streets initiative. Blue Hill Ave is closed to traffic today and will be open for people to enjoy music and games while shops and restaurants will be able to set up on the street. 
In Chicago last night, the Red Sox beat the Cubs 8-3. to They meet again this afternoon in Foxborough tonight. The Revs host D.C. United. It is 78 degrees in Boston with a chance of some showers and thunderstorms today and highs reaching the upper 80s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by View Boston, now open. A new experience atop the Prue with three stories of 360-degree panoramic views, featuring food and drinks and opportunities to discover hidden gems of Boston and snap a selfie on the outdoor roof deck. Tickets at viewboston.com. The Sumner Tunnel is closed through the end of August. So if you're trying to get from East Boston or Logan Airport to downtown, state officials say please don't drive. The fastest, cheapest, and most reliable way in and out of Boston during this time period is going to, without a doubt, be public transportation. We are providing free and discounted Blue Line, commuter rail, bus, and ferry service. For tips on how to get around the summer Sumner shutdown, visit WBUR.org and stay tuned to WBUR for updates. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple, in stores or delivered from hintwater.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Two weeks to the day after the U.S. Supreme Court shut down President Biden's student loan relief program, the Education Department announced some surprising big news Friday. It said it would erase the debts of more than 800,000 borrowers. It's part of a promise the administration made last year in part in response to an NPR investigation. NPR's Corey Turner led that investigation and joins us. Corey, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Scott. So convince me that this is somehow not related (laughs) to the Supreme Court fight. I know. The timing's weird. (laughs) It's weird. It surprised me, too. Uh, And it is confusing. Uh, But no, this has been in the works since April of 2022. It has been on a completely separate track. This relief is also real. It is happening imminently. Uh, It affects some of the oldest loans and some of the oldest borrowers in the system, Scott. And that's because by definition, folks who are going to get this relief have had loans for at least 20 years. And one more thing here while we're talking about the court, this move is not going to be vulnerable to a court challenge the way Biden's broader program was. And that is because this is essentially the Ed Department trying to fix years of pretty serious mistakes with the loan program. Help us understand those mistakes that affected these 800,000 borrowers. Sure. Well, it all has to do with what was really meant to be the safety net of the federal student loan program for low-income borrowers. It's a suite of repayment plans that peg monthly payments to borrowers' income. So folks who don't make very much don't pay very much. They can even qualify for a $0 monthly payment. And these income-driven repayment plans, they're called IDR plans, uh, have for years made one really big promise to borrowers. And that is, if they make these monthly payments for 20 years, the government would forgive whatever debt is left over after that. Here's the problem, Scott. Borrowers were spending 20 years or more in the system, but nobody 
was getting forgiveness. Mm -hmm. There was this incredible review from Borrower Advocates came out in March of 2021. It found that some 4 million borrowers had been in the loan system for at least two decades, and yet just 32, that is a 3-2, Scott, had gotten loan forgiveness through one of these IDR plans. 32? How is that possible? Well, it's possible because these plans didn't have one problem. They had all of the problems. So first, for years, when low-income borrowers would call their loan servicer and say, help, I, I can't afford my monthly payment, servicers instead put millions of borrowers into forbearance when they could have put them in these IDR plans. Forbearance means payments are paused, but interest keeps building and building, Scott. It is not good. And then last April, 2022, NPR published an investigation that I did around a bunch of leaked Ed Department documents that showed even more problems and that the department knew about them. So several loan servicers weren't keeping track of borrower payments. That means even if a borrower did reach 20 years and technically qualified for forgiveness, the servicer didn't know it. Mm. And then one of the strangest things I found was that the record system that Ed and its servicers use is so bad that when a borrower is transferred from one servicer to another, which happens a lot, mm -hmm. their payment history can get cut off or lost. The Ed Department called our findings unacceptable. They quickly pledged to do a one-time review of millions of borrower accounts. And that, Scott, is basically what we're seeing now, the department giving this retroactive credit to borrowers uh, towards loan forgiveness to the tune of $39 billion. And there is more to come too. More to come? How so? Yeah, these 800,000 borrowers are just the beginning. This account adjustment, that's what the department calls it, is going to last into 2024. So stay tuned. Um, both the cost and the number of borrowers helped are both guaranteed to grow. NPR's Corey Turner, thanks so much. You're welcome. Foster care homes in America are now in short supply. Many states have reported drops in the number of homes since the beginning of the pandemic. Recruiting foster families has become a priority for systems that include Nevada's, which launched training sessions this week. Kevin Quint is a clinical program manager for Nevada's Division of Child and Family Services and joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. How steep has the decline been? Well, um, in 2019, we had about 244 homes in what we call the rural region of Nevada, which is the 15 rural counties of Nevada. And that uh, has gone down to 125 homes, about a 50% decrease. What's happened? Well, lots of things. I, I'm sure COVID had something to do with it. Just people changing their priorities and not sure what to do next. And during the pandemic, our recruitment efforts slowed down just because we couldn't go places or couldn't see people. I think the economy may have had an impact on it. Um, I think another issue I need to mention, by the way, is that in the foster care system, the children we're getting in foster care now are coming in with more higher needs, such as mental health issues and behavioral issues. And that can also be a strain on foster homes as well. Yeah, and, and, and I'm going to imagine that mental health issues were, was just aggravated during the pandemic. Yes. And do I understand it correctly that you uh, you have a need for foster parents, especially in rural areas, the, some of the vast expanse of Nevada? Yes, we do, because what happens is it's a huge state, and we have 400 miles from, from north to south, basically. And so 
uh, if you have a child who's in Elko, which is northeastern Nevada, and they get placed in Pahrump, which is almost to Las Vegas, that's a whole different desert. It's a whole different you know, landscape, and even culturally it can be different as well. So um, we want to have enough homes in every community so that children can stay close to their own home, they can stay close to their schools, stay close to their family. And because reunification with their birth parents is our top priority, if that's appropriate, if that's possible, then uh, we want them to be closer to their parents. And when they're hundreds of miles away from their parents, it makes it difficult to reunify because visits are hard to arrange and it's hard to just put all those logistics together. Tell us about your training. What do you do? Well, our training is designed to um, prepare people for the, just to, to enter into foster care. We talk about how, how things work with child welfare, the courts. Um, we talk about children's trauma and help the participants learn skills in uh, working with kids, like in maybe helping them regulate their emotions, uh, navigate their daily lives, and how to understand the child's behavior. What makes somebody a good foster parent? person's understanding and willing to see the child as being someone who needs to be loved and cared for, and then being willing to stay the course with them. Because trauma and the things that these kids go through are things that don't just go away with a hug and a kiss. What do you tell parents who might be on the fence, who, who think it's something they might want to do, but they know that in the end, if even if it's successful, they wind up taking someone into their lives and then having to say goodbye? I love that question because we don't talk about this very often, but we try to remind people on training that we understand that when you have a child in your home for a month, six months, a year, or even longer sometimes, it becomes a, a, a great bond. <clears throat> and so when children leave, there's a grief process for, for not only the child, but also for the caregiver. That's a big deal because yeah. there, there's love there. I didn't mention before, but I was a foster parent also. One thing I learned when I was a foster parent was that a child can't have too many people that love them. That really hit me in the heart, realizing that when the child's gone, you can still be part of their life. That can be, be a reality, and that's good for the child. And it's good for the caregiver who gave themselves for that child for all that time. I've heard of, for instance, foster parents having children back in their home after they reunited with their family for sleepovers or for babysitting or for outings or shared vacations. That can happen. What do you say to parents who say, I just don't know if I have the wherewithal, if we have the wherewithal to take a child in? That's something that does get asked sometimes. They, they do ask that, and they, they're not sure. And so we say to them, look, you can go to training, and if you decide not to, no harm, no foul. Call us later if you want to. If not, that's fine, too. Mr. Quint, have you seen lives saved in your work? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> I'm so, so glad you asked that. We have a boy right now in the system who just turned 17, was in probably 10 or 12 placements, and then his dream in life has been to be adopted. We found a person that, that really fit his needs. She, he's been there for about a year now. He just turned 17. He's, um, he's gone from being a poor student and not really engaged. In, he fought a lot, that kind of thing. He played in this high school basketball team. He uh, has a driver's license, which is quite rare for foster kids. He's doing pretty well in school. He's not an A student, but he's, he's doing okay. He's going to pass high school and be fine. And his foster mom wants to adopt him. And he is thrilled. Another one I can think of is a, a three-year-old boy that um, parents had drug problems. And in fact, his mother eventually died from drugs, which is very sad. But he came to a home and, and uh, um, didn't have any kind of schedule. He didn't have any, didn't know when to sleep, didn't know how to eat, didn't, wasn't potty trained. Had like three or four words he could say. One year at that home, he was able to learn all those things. 
he's, he's a child that needed to be loved and, and helped. And he's now with his paternal grandmother um, in California. And he's nine years old now. He's doing, doing great. So just, I'd say overall, the system really helps give children a chance, provides children with an opportunity. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Quint of the State of Nevada Division of Child and Family Services, thanks so much for being with us, Mr. Quint. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Robert Reich is a former U.S. Secretary of Labor and Rhodes Scholar, an acclaimed author, and now Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy, University of California, Berkeley. Robert Reich is also less than five feet tall. Professor Reich wrote about his height recently for his Substack newsletter, a column entitled, Why I'm So Short. He joins us now from Berkeley. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you, Scott. I can't think of a better way to begin by asking, what was it like to grow up? Well, I didn't grow up. (laughs) I set that up for you. (laughs) I grew upward. I grew upward. Not very much. Uh, But uh, I was very fortunate, Scott. My parents were very, very loving and accepting, and most of my friends were were accepting. Now, you know, I, I was harassed and bullied a little bit and ridiculed. And that, uh, I think, goes with the territory. But basically, I had a happy childhood. wasn't until much later you discovered you have a genetic disorder, a rare genetic disorder that's colloquially called Fairbanks disease. What is it? How should we understand it? Uh, Well, I didn't really understand it uh, for many, many years. It's a kind of deformity in which the cartilage at the end of one's bone that that eventually adds additional bone when you are supposed to be growing up doesn't really do its job. It doesn't extend the bones as far as they, the long bones, as far as they're supposed to be extended. Uh, Eventually, I had to have my two hips replaced, and I, I still have various aches and pains. What was dating like? Well, that was a, <laughs> that was a problem, which, or I should say a challenge. Um, in my teenage years and in, the, in my 20s, I, I chose to go to an all-male college. Mm-hmm. In those days, there were such things. And uh, that may not have been the wisest choice because the, the only way you could get to date anybody, uh, a woman, a young woman, was to go to a woman's college for Friday night or Saturday night. In those circumstances, first impressions counted a great deal. And let's put it this way, there was not very much interest in um, in me. Bill Clinton used to make jokes, didn't he? Uh, he did. And you, you two have been friends since uh, your days at university together. Exactly. And I think that's the point. He felt very free uh, to make jokes about my height because I was very often making self-deprecating jokes about my height. In fact, there was one moment when we were touring a, uh, I don't even know why we were doing it, but it was Legoland. It oh, had, I think it, I remember this, yes. And I, I, don't, I honestly don't remember why we were doing it, but he, uh, there was a little Lego house, and he said, gee, that's, that's a nice house. Uh, even Secretary Reich could fit in there. <laughs> and, and I laughed. I thought it was very funny, and he thought it was funny. We both laughed. Yeah. Uh, but it caused, some people were, were offended. You've looked at some of the research, and, and it, it's mixed. What is it, the taller candidate tends to be elected president? Yes, uh, it's fascinating, actually. You know, people are more likely to make disparaging cracks about short people uh, because nobody gets pulled up short 
for doing it, but respected people have stature and are looked up to. This is even in our language. Yeah. And, uh, well, the researchers, their theory is that there is some sort of genetic trigger in our brain mm -hmm. that told early humans they needed the protection of big men. Other things being equal, large males are more to be feared and longer living. And so probably makes some evolutionary sense. I gather families write you. Yes. Over the years, I get an, a fair number of letters and I've got, uh, you know, since email was available, a lot of emails uh, from parents of unusually short children who seek my advice. They, they, I think they really want my reassurance more than my advice. Uh, they want to know what to do, or is this going to be a problem? Is it going to hold their children back in any way? Um, well, I don't want to impose my views on them, but I gently urge them not to resort to limb lengthening surgeries or growth hormone treatments or I mean, there are all sorts of things out there. I urge them not to do any of these things. I, I just tell them to love their short kids, inundate them with affection, and they'll be okay. I don't know who I would be if, in growing up, my parents had decided to take some risk uh, and make me taller and they had succeeded. I would be a different person. Robert Reich, a former U.S. Secretary of Labor, currently teaching at UC Berkeley, and uh, a figure of true stature. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you, Scott. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. From Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world and from the listeners who support this NPR station. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It is 78 degrees in Boston. A flood watch is in effect starting late tonight, extending through late tomorrow night. A chance of some showers and thunderstorms today, highs in the upper 80s. A chance of showers tonight, lows in the low 70s overnight. Tomorrow, showers, a chance of thunderstorms, Sunday's highs in the low 80s. Still a chance of showers and thunderstorms Monday with temperatures in the 80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. 
On a recent Wait, Wait, Roxanne Roberts sent a warning to the aspiring politicians posting workout selfies online. There's a lot of men who think that they look really good naked or without shirts, and somebody needs to disabuse them of this. I'm Peter Sagal. You never know when one of those guys will pop up on your screen, so stay safe by sticking to the radio. As we talk to Broadway legend Patti Lapone on this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, the heat scalding tens of millions of Americans this weekend. Also, writers and actors on strike. Production shut down. We'll hear from the picket lines. Wimbledon finals and another collegiate coaching scandal. New film from Christian Petzold, the great German director, about people in a summer house as a fire grows near. And John McPhee's new book at the age of 92, Tabula Rasa, Volume 1. I have a contract for volume two, three, four. <laughs> I made a contract with Farrah Strauss that calls for another book someday, and someday after that, the whole idea is not to die. First, our newscast at Saturday, July 15, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. A major heat wave continues this weekend. Nearly a third of Americans are under heat warnings or advisories. In the western U.S., officials at Grand Canyon National Park are urging visitors to prepare for extreme temperatures. Ryan Heinches of member station KNAU reports. This weekend, Phantom Ranch at the bottom of the canyon along the Colorado River will approach its record high of 120 degrees. Park officials say those venturing out should know the risks and have been spreading the word at entrance stations, visitor centers, and online. Joelle Baird is a former backcountry ranger and spokesperson for Grand Canyon. They should be focused on minimizing physical activity during the hottest time of the day to prevent exertional heat illness. A team of search and rescue rangers has been working to preempt emergencies on the canyon's trails. Earlier this month, a woman died from heat-related causes while attempting a hike in a remote area of the park. For NPR News, I'm Ryan Heinches in Flagstaff. More rain is expected this weekend in Vermont, which saw catastrophic flooding this week. President Biden yesterday issued a major disaster declaration to provide federal support. Officials called this week's flooding the state's worst natural disaster since floods in 1927. The House has passed the National Defense Authorization Act. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the measure cleared the chamber with very little support from Democrats, and it contains a number of controversial amendments put forth by a group of Republican hardliners. The House bill includes provisions that would prohibit gender-affirming care and eliminate diversity and inclusion programs at the Pentagon. Another amendment would get rid of funding for service members who travel out of state to terminate a pregnancy. Democrats who voted against the measure say they're hoping to have a chance to work with the Senate to bring back a national security bill that they can support. The Senate is in the process of working up its own version of the legislation. 
NPR's Windsor Johnston. There's a sense of relief and surprise in a Long Island suburb where a 59-year-old architect has been arrested in connection with a string of murders. NPR's Dwali Saikautau reports. Hours after Rex Herman was arrested and charged with killing three women, the quiet Massapequa neighborhood where he lived was packed with curious onlookers, including neighbor Stan Spagnuolo. You know, until it plays out and we, we, we really get to understand, you know, what really happened, hopefully we'll understand why. Um, you know, hopefully give some closure to the families, but I, I don't, you hear that all the time, but I, I couldn't fathom how that possibly could. Investigators say they matched DNA from a pizza that Herman ate to hair found on the remains of one of the victims. Dwali Saikautel, NPR News, Massapequa, Long Island. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Massachusetts Department of Agricultural Resources estimates 1,000 acres of crops have been lost following the storms earlier this week. The state says at least 75 farms have been affected. East Hampton farmer Liz Hadler says she thinks she lost $650,000 in crops. All of our potatoes, all of our sweet corn, green peppers. Hadler says she planted her crops in fields that rarely flood this time of year. Despite this week's losses, she is considering planting in the same area again. I think that if it's a once in every 50 year flood, then that is probably a risk that we would take. Senator Elizabeth Warren and Congressman Jim McGovern will tour flood-damaged farms today. People in Vermont are drying out homes and businesses damaged by this week's historic flooding. Salvation Army volunteers from Massachusetts are in central Vermont, the hardest-hit part of the state. Major Keith J. Key says the helpers split into two groups. One went door-to-door, checking some of the hard-hit areas, making sure they needed water, clean-up kits, and meals. And then another one, we went to Montpelier to a, uh, a housing project. Yesterday, President Biden approved Governor Phil Scott's request for a major disaster declaration that will help expedite federal relief for Vermont. Amherst College is asking people in Massachusetts to help them research the state's bear population. Thea Christensen is coordinating the effort. She's calling on residents to submit home security camera footage if a bear wanders into their yard. As we get more data from folks, especially those with a fixed trail camera, we can um, do things like thinking about behaviors of animals. How are they behaving in different parts of their range? We can think about where they're distributed. Christensen recommends people make sure there are no food sources on their property, such as dog food, bird feeders, or open cans of garbage. It's 78 degrees in Boston with a flood watch in effect from late tonight through late tomorrow night. Today, a chance of some showers and thunderstorms and highs in the upper 80s. A chance of showers tonight. Showers tomorrow, a chance of thunderstorms, highs in the low 80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks for being with us. The National Defense Authorization Act, Congress's annual defense bill, defines the national security priorities for the Pentagon, and historically, it's had bipartisan support. But on Friday, It narrowly passed the Republican-controlled House along near-party lines. The $886 billion bill became a proxy for the culture wars between the two parties on everything from racial equity to 
access to abortion. Speaker Kevin McCarthy said the bill sends this message to Democrats. Stop using taxpayer money to do their own wokeism. A military cannot defend themselves if you train them in woke. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis joins us. Sue, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. How did this defense bill become a, a, a proxy fight? Well, hardline conservatives in the House Freedom Caucus really focus their political muscle in shaping this bill in a way they never have before. Very broadly, Republicans do take issue with Biden administration policies that they say make the military too socially progressive. So in this bill, for example, they passed amendments that would roll back existing policies that fund DEI programs, that's diversity, equity, and inclusion. They also added in prohibitions on things like specialized health care for transgender service members. Democrats oppose these, but they also countered that their policies that make the military uh, attract a more diverse workforce and could help struggling recruitment if they're seen as more inclusive. That's the force of the Democratic opposition to these amendments. Much of this bill, Scott, is important to remember, is very bipartisan. One good example of that, this bill includes a 5.2% pay raise for service members and more child care and housing assistance for military families. There's a significant divide in this defense bill, though, over access to abortion, isn't there? Yeah. The Biden administration enacted a policy that covers certain costs of service members if they have to travel to receive abortion services. This came in response to the Supreme Court Dobbs decision when it overturned Roe v. Wade. Since that point, more than a dozen states have enacted near total bans on abortion. Republicans say that this policy violates a very well-established law known as the Hyde Amendment. That says that taxpayer dollars can't be used to pay for anyone's abortion. But this Biden policy does not actually pay for abortion costs. It does reimburse for travel expenses, and it also allows for up to three weeks of administrative leave to receive that care. But the Republican-passed bill would effectively end that policy. We've been talking about um, what's been happening in the Republican-controlled House. Democrats control the Senate. Can we expect these, these fights to resume there? Well, there hasn't been as much interest among Senate Republicans in focusing on these culture war type issues, specifically in a defense bill. Frankly, none of these Republican amendments can survive in a Democratic controlled Senate. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says they want to pass their own version of the bill before the August break, and then they're going to have to try to reconcile two competing versions of the bill. It's really hard to say how that can happen unless Speaker McCarthy is willing to water down his bill to get more Democrats on board. But stripping out these amendments would likely see support collapse among the conservatives that helped write it. So for now, McCarthy seems ready to fight. One sign of that, he already announced that one of the negotiators he's sending to that table will be far-right conservative Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis, thanks so much. You're welcome. Across the South and West, a heat wave is scorching Texas, Arizona, and Nevada, among other states. In dry areas, fire officials say those temperatures make conditions ideal for wildfires. But in California, the abnormal amount of rain and snow that fell earlier this year is helping to stave off intense fires, despite the heat, at least for now, KQED's Dana Cronin explains. High up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, Maritza Ariola is using a pair of red garden shears to clip small branches off a chemise bush. I just clip it and it just falls into the can. And that's my first 
new growth clipping. Ariola is a grad student at San Jose State University in the meteorology department. She's part of a group of students who come to this sampling site twice a month to collect what she calls fuel samples. She then takes these samples back to the lab, throws them in an oven, and eventually calculates how much water the branches are holding. Fire agencies use that data to help determine wildfire danger. Craig Clements is a wildfire scientist at SJSU and Areola's advisor. It's the same thing as if you, when you're trying to start a campfire, you don't use wet wood. It's very hard to get wet wood to ignite. The fuel in California is taking longer than usual to dry out this summer because of all the rain and snow the state got earlier in the year. That's why the National Interagency Fire Center predicts this upcoming wildfire season in California will be, quote, normal in some areas and below normal in others. It's a welcome relief after a series of record-breaking wildfires over the past few years. We've had a very slow start and that continues, but this heat wave does have the potential to kind of catch us up quickly. That's Nick Nosler with the National Interagency Fire Center. He says that if California sees more sustained heat this summer, alongside dry and windy conditions, wildfire season could be worse than predicted. It would take an enormous pattern change to have that switch, but it's still possible. If that forecast does flip, grassy regions would be at higher risk than forested ones. That's because all that rain allowed more grasses to grow, which can fuel fires when they dry out. But wildfire scientist Craig Clemens says even if there's more heat, that growth isn't enough to be a big concern this fire season. Yeah, it might cause a little bit of hotter fires burning. But in grass fuels, it's not significant. Not yet, at least. Clement says after another growing season, those additional grasses and shrubs could become more risky. For NPR News, I'm Dana Cronin. Actors have now joined the picket lines of screenwriters who have been on strike against producers and streaming companies since early May. Just to note here, many NPR staffers are also members of SAG-AFTRA, though we're under a different contract than the actors. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco has been covering the Hollywood labor disputes and has this report. Outside Netflix headquarters in Hollywood, it's a party with writers and actors on strike. It's great. It's so nice to see everyone in solidarity and joining forces for pay and equity. William Cadena, who's been in a lot of commercials, said the actors and writers are also fighting to regulate the use of artificial intelligence, which they say threatens to replace their work. On the other side, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers says it offered an historic contract regarding pay and AI. The studio's alliance says the strike will cause further hardship for the film and TV industry. Just before the strike was announced, Disney CEO Bob Iger was on CNBC criticizing the striking actors and writers. There's a level of expectation that they have that is just not realistic. And they are adding to a set of challenges that this business is already facing that is, quite frankly, very disruptive. So they're not being realistic? Uh, no, they're not. But comments like that have angered striking actors like Kristen McLaughlin and Jordan Hill. These CEOs that are making millions and millions of dollars and they think that we're being ridiculous, asking to have fair wages, we're not asking for an obscene amount. We're just asking to be able to survive. Writers and actors and directors and everyone in front of behind the camera are the reason 
that movies are made. And so we deserve compensation. And so I hope these studio corporate greed heads start to realize that. Performers on strike point out that only a small percentage of the 160,000 sag after members can afford to make a living through acting. In L.A. and New York, some of the big-name stars were also on the picket lines. This is the first double strike by Hollywood actors and writers since 1960, when Ronald Reagan was president, not of the U.S., but the Screen Actors Guild. Here he is a week into that strike, talking outside the Hollywood Palladium Theater. We negotiated with the producers for the first time in the area which heretofore has not been a subject for negotiations, and I believe that in a spirit of goodwill and fair negotiations, we are now on our way to a settlement of what has been a very regrettable and tragic affair. As a result of the 1960s strikes, actors and writers secured health care benefits, pensions, and a compensation system of residuals when movies were aired on television. Now, as Hollywood has turned to streaming services, actors and writers say residuals are once again an issue, and they're mad. Outside Netflix yesterday, SAG after President Fran Drescher blasted the studios. We were duped. We thought that they were really serious about making some deep inroads for us, but that's not what happened. They went behind closed doors, they canceled meetings with us, but they came back with bupkis, and I think they were manipulating us so that they can further promote their summer movies. During the strike, the actors won't be able to act, sing, do stunts, or promote upcoming movies. But Ravi Naidu, who is in the series Mayfair Witches and Curb Your Enthusiasm, says it's worth it. He sees this as part of the country's labor union movement. I hope that this is a start of what we need to see changed in our system of capitalism. It's become greedism and it's just bizarre that we have created a system that is designed to eat each other. The actors and the writers say they'll be out here on the picket lines as long as it takes to get their Hollywood ending. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News, Hollywood. And you're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. Coming up in about 20 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, a judge in Virginia dismissed charges against a black man who was lynched 125 years ago after being accused of sexually assaulting a white woman. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. You can count on WBUR wherever you may be, at the park, at the beach, on a walk, at your desk. The WBUR app makes it easy to tap and listen wherever the summer takes you. Listen live and catch up on anything you miss. Download the WBUR app today. It's 79 degrees in Boston. A flood watch is in effect starting in the overnight hours tonight through late tomorrow night. Um, some showers and thunderstorms around today with highs in the upper 80s. This is 90.9 WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by View Boston, now open. A new experience atop the Prue with three stories of 360-degree panoramic views, featuring food and drinks and opportunities to discover hidden gems of Boston and snap a selfie on the outdoor roof deck. Tickets at viewboston.com. I'm Nora Rahm with these headlines. Nearly a third of Americans are under extreme heat advisories, watchers, or warnings this weekend. Temperatures are expected above 120 degrees in parts of Nevada, Arizona, and California. The forecast this weekend in Vermont is more rain. The state was hit hard by floods this week. Yesterday, President Biden issued an emergency declaration to provide federal aid. And South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol is in Ukraine. He traveled there on an unannounced visit after attending the NATO summit in Lithuania. It's his first visit to Ukraine since the Russian invasion. South Korea has joined the international sanctions against Russia. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed. Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting those working to improve the nation's immigration system and celebrating the contributions of immigrants to American life. More at Carnegie.org slash Great Immigrants. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. And a caution before we begin, this next story discusses suicide, specifically one of the U.S.'s responses to an alarming increase in the suicide rate. 988 is now the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just those three digits. Used to be a 10-digit number. But this new system went live a year ago. Ryan Levy joins us today. He's a reporter and producer with the podcast Tradeoffs that looked into the 988 system at this year milestone. Ryan, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. Are people using the number? They are. In its first year, 988 received more than 5 million calls, chats, and texts. Uh, That's a 35% increase compared to the last year of the 10-digit line. Um, And that's even more impressive when you realize that, according to a recent Pew survey, only 13% of U.S. adults have heard of 988 and know what it's for. Um, But the number that really caught my attention, Scott, is that the number of texts answered by 988 grew by 1,135%. Good Lord. Any idea of why the texting option is being used by so many people? I mean, I think there is a natural appeal to text, right? You know, many people these days, especially younger people, prefer texting to talking on the phone. Um, I talked with counselors who said they'd receive texts from people on public buses, uh, kids in school, folks who are in the same room as their abusers, you know, people who would really struggle to call in for help. Um, We should also say, you know, 
the infrastructure to handle these techs is still a work in progress. You know, it requires additional staff, new trainings, a special tech platform uh, that a lot of these centers still just don't have. Um, but I talked to one young woman who we're calling by her middle name, Marie, because her mental health challenges are related to a past abusive relationship. And she was hours into a dissociative episode that had left her unable to speak last December when she texted 988. I just remember shaking and being on the floor and not knowing how to get my like soul back to my body. Marie was 5,000 miles away from her friends and family finishing up uh, her master's degree. And she spent an hour texting with a 988 counselor who listened to her, validated how she was feeling and helped her stop spiraling. She like was able to kind of pull me back into myself. Um, it's what I needed, so I'm really thankful. Marie said to this day, Scott, that she still rereads her texts with that 988 counselor when she's struggling. What have some of the challenges been? So staffing is a big issue. Um, there are still staffing shortages. Nearly every state still has job openings for their call centers. Um, there's also a lot of variation across states in terms of how many calls and texts they're actually getting to. So only 18 states hit the goal answer rate of 90% in May. Um, and that matters, Scott, because if a call or a text doesn't get answered in state, uh, it often gets sent to a counselor in a different state. And that person is much less likely to be able to, you know, direct someone to local resources like a drop-in center or treatment. What do they see ahead for 988 in its second year? So they're adding more features. Um, they just launched Spanish language texting. Um, video calls are also in the works for deaf and hard of hearing folks. Um, but funding is still a big question mark. Uh, the Biden administration has put nearly a billion dollars into 988, but there's no guarantee that that support will continue. So states are gonna have to step up in ways that we haven't yet seen across the board. Um, there are also a lot of questions about what happens after someone reaches out to 988, you know? Is there a non-police option that can respond if someone needs more than a call or a text? Um, are there places that people can go if they're not safe at home or wherever they are? Hannah Wesolowski is with the National Alliance of Mental Illness, and she told me that 988 has a lot to be proud of in year one, but more work is needed. Everyone always talks about it took decades to build the 911 system, and it did. But if we take decades to build this system, we're going to lose a lot of lives. In other words, everyone has to stay focused on this to make sure that this entire system works well and works for everybody. Reporter Ryan Levy from the podcast Tradeoffs. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. Communities all over Vermont are cleaning up after a week of heavy rain and flooding. Rain that continued last night. One of the places hardest hit is Ludlow, a ski town in the southern part of the state. Vermont Public's Nina Keck takes us there. Dump trucks and heavy equipment stir up a hazy layer of dust in Ludlow, clearing the roads. The wet sludge that covered much of the downtown has begun to dry. Orion Jones stands near the back door of the Main and Mountain Motel. Yesterday, we were just focused on pretty much getting all the water out of the basement. We moved out a bunch of washer, dryers, a bunch of appliances. A lot of lifting. <laughs> Jones is from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and was visiting. He couldn't leave, so decided to help clean up. I think you might get a little wet. It's yeah. still, there's still some water down there. He shows me where they've been working. Oh, wow, you get that flooded basement smell right away. Oh, my God, yeah, no, absolutely. And this, this pump right here, it's been going for the last 24 hours. Across the street at the Homestyle Hotel, 
Abby Childs and several others are shoveling silt out of a back room. Be careful, it's really slippery. That's the water line. Yes, and that's it's even higher in this room. That's like almost up to your armpit. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> How many buckets would you say you guys have emptied? Fifty. We head outside and step around piles of mud. The building is just feet from the Black River. Now it's a muddy brown. Abby Child's home wasn't impacted by the flooding. She feels lucky. I couldn't imagine spending a day any different. I have to come over here because the destruction is unfathomable. <laughs> well, like I said, if you need anything, let me know. Down the street, Craig Goodman stands in the parking lot of his pizzeria, chatting with a neighbor in a pickup. All right, I'll help as much as I can. All right, later. Thank you. In 2011, Goodman lost his business in Tropical Storm Irene. He was luckier this time. His restaurant is still standing, and he's giving back with free pizza for anyone helping with the cleanup. Thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you for coming down. Oh, my God. Well, How are you guys we've been here sooner, but on Pleasant Street now there's a fire. Thank you so much. You're welcome. For a few hours, Goodman's Pizzeria becomes an oasis where tired and muddy neighbors share stories, compare damage, and reassure each other that things will get better. Thank you guys for coming down. Susan Mordecai and Mitch Ray live in nearby Plymouth and took a lunch break together. Everybody's helping one another. Arms are out there. Arms are open wide holding everyone. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. That's what we do. Brave little state. We're accustomed to not having access to a lot of the luxuries of, of big cities and bigger towns, so we just really like to fall on neighborly love. A few weeks ago, I, I, like many other people, were a little bit heartbroken, thinking, what are we doing? Where are we going as a, as a world, as a community? Are we taking care of one another? It seemed like at a time what we weren't. But when this came around, I'm like, no, we are taking care of one another. Inside his pizzeria, Craig Goodman has a bucket and a Venmo account for donations. He's already received more than $20,000. It's more than he expected. But at the same time, he's not surprised his community is coming through. For NPR News, I'm Nina Keck in Chittenden, Vermont. In addition to the damage in cities and towns, farms in Vermont were also wiped out, just as many prepare for harvest. This was a field of pumpkins that's all gone. Over on the other side of that tree is, that was a haylot right there. That's gone. Hear how many farmers are expecting to lose hundreds of thousands of dollars. Later today on All Things Considered, you can tune in on your radio or tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. And now it's time for sports. Championship weekend at Wimbledon. Team scandals at Northwestern. And the U.S. women's soccer team tries for three World Cup championships in a row. Michelle Steele of ESPN joins us. Michelle, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, no problem, Scott. 
The Wimbledon, the the women's Wimbledon final is underway as we speak. Can I sneak a look at the? Uh, I, I think it's against the broadcast rules for me to say what's going on exactly. But uh, <laughs> Ons Jabor of Tunisia faces uh, Marketa Vandruzova of the Czech Republic. This isn't the final anybody predicted, is it? Yeah, not so much, Scott. You know, if either of these women wins, it would be their first Grand Slam title. Now, Jabur is the favorite, and she is phenomenal on grass. She's sixth ranked in the world. But Von Druzova, if she wins, she'd be the first unseeded woman to win Wimbledon in the modern era. Now, that 24-year-old Czech player has been turning heads uh, with an assortment of tattoos on her arms. can probably see him on the screen right now. And she even has a bet with her coach that if she wins today, he'll get one. So we'll see if that goes down. (laughs) Uh, Men's finals tomorrow. Um, What I I can't say it better than this. Uh, Alcaraz Mm -hmm. versus Djokovic. Uh, Greatest player of all time versus the 20-year-old Spanish player who might be in that company by the end of his career. Doesn't get any better than this, does it? Oh, yeah, it's sort of a tennis greats present versus the future. A lot of people are talking about this, Scott, as an absolute dream final. You have Joker, right? Number two ranked player in the world, record 35 Grand Slam singles finals. And the 20-year-old Alcaraz, who's number one, they have played twice in the past. Mm -hmm. In 2022, Alcaraz won. Last month, Joker won. Now, one interesting twist here. Alcaraz has has admitted that, uh, understandably, playing Joker makes him very nervous. He even said it was one reason he cramped up and cut their last match short. So we know that tennis is a very physical sport. It's a mental one, too. Tomorrow will be absolute appointment programming for anybody that loves the game. Got to ask you about Northwestern. Two coaches at Northwestern University, Pat Fitzgerald, coach of the football team, Jim Foster of the baseball team, uh, were let go this week over allegations of bullying, hazing, fostering toxic work environments, and, and, and even some more stuff. What do we know? Yeah, you know what? Uh, This has been the dominant story in Chicago this week, and this has been a national one as well. You know, a buddy of mine went to Northwestern and said, no matter what the record was for the football team, you could take pride that they were doing things the right way. Well, you know, Scott, this has been handled about as poorly as you can imagine by Northwestern. Uh, The administration initially handed down a two-week suspension to the football coach, was kind of hoping to keep the allegations quiet, Well, the hazing claims went public, very public last weekend, thanks to some crack student reporters at the Daily Northwestern. And uh, the university did a really embarrassing about face. They said they made a mistake. They fired him. Baseball coach let go this week, too, after evidence of bullying. Like you said, you know, another black mark on an athletic department that many in the Big Ten have come to expect much better from. Yeah, Uh, FIFA Women's World Cup. Uh, kicks off, <laughs> get it, Thursday in Australia and New Zealand. <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, I was hoping that would be subtle. Team USA Boo. <laughs> is up for an unprecedented third World Cup in a row. They're the favorites. This isn't the same team that won the last two Cups, though, right? Yeah. Uh, they're still the women's national team for the United States, so they're the favorites. Uh, they're hoping for a three-peat, which no men or women's team has ever done But it's a different team. Like you said, they've been hit with the injury bug early. Even the captain uh, went down after injuring her foot. 
Um, and there's a ton of new faces. You know, you will recognize some of the big stars, the veterans, Megan Rapino, Alex Morgan, but 14 of the 23 players that went down under this week, they are World Cup newbies, Scott. But uh, this first game should be pretty manageable, right? They're facing a very overmatched Vietnam team on Friday night. The U.S. is expected to get out of their group stage handily. I wouldn't bet against them, but this is a very new team. Yeah. Well, time will tell. Isn't that how we put it? Oh, I hate to say that, but in this case, we'll see. Yes. All right. Michelle Steele of ESPN, thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Sure. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. A judge ruled this week in an unusual case that dates back more than a century. In 1898, a black man from Charlottesville, Virginia, was lynched. After he died, a grand jury indicted him for sexual assault. Remember station WVTF Sandy Hausman reports on an effort to reevaluate the evidence. In the shade of an old oak tree, a plaque outside the Albemarle County Courthouse in downtown Charlottesville tells the story of John Henry James, a black man who had lived in the area for about five years, sold ice cream for a living, and was accused of sexually assaulting a white woman. He was taken into custody and he was removed from Albemarle County to spend the night because of a fear that there would be racial violence directed toward him. That's Jim Hingley, a local prosecutor who says that the following day, James was headed back to Charlottesville for a hearing when a mob of about 150 white men stopped the train on which he was riding. He was taken to a nearby locust tree, lynched, and then his body was shot. And word came to the grand jury that he was killed. Despite that, the grand jury issued the indictment. This week, to bring some justice to James, he took the case to court asking to have the indictment thrown out. Mr. Hingley, we are here on your motion. The court is prepared for you. You may proceed. Judge Cheryl Higgins listened as he explained that evidence in the case was thin and contradictory. There was even doubt as to whether a rape had occurred. Yet a grand jury, 125 years ago, decided to indict a dead man. University of Virginia professor Jelaine Schmidt studied the case and gave testimony. She believes grand jury members were trying to protect the mob from charges of murder. Yeah, I think it was a signal from the grand jury to law enforcement. Hey, don't even bother to investigate this. You know, we've got this taken care of. Let's just move on. But the black community in Charlottesville did not move on. They remembered James, and many were in the crowded courtroom this week. They sat quietly as Judge Higgins rendered her decision. The indictment was never intended to be and did not serve as an instrument of justice. Instead, it was used corruptly to sanction the racial terror lynching of John Henry James. The motion to dismiss is granted. Outside the courthouse, civil rights activist Freeman Allen rejoiced. Justice finally has come to John Henry James, and it is a redemption in many ways for Elmore County and for Charlottesville. But for Robert Trent Vinson, chairman of African-American studies at the University of Virginia, the decision was bittersweet. While I'm happy for this indictment being removed after 125 years, I'm still in mourning for the fact that this man, John Henry James, lost his life in the first place. Some people hope this case serves as a warning to law enforcement today. Professor Schmidt says the police chief and sheriff 
were present when John Henry James was lynched. Nearly a century later, in August of 2017, white supremacists marched in Charlottesville and officers again failed to protect people of color. Right here, you know, right where we're standing here. This is where white supremacists beat up members of this community and racial justice activists, and the police stood idly by and watched it happen. For his part, Jim Hingley hopes the case of John Henry James prompts Americans to work harder to end racial injustice. For NPR News, I'm Sandy Hausman in Charlottesville. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Boston's new electoral map is expected to stand. Plaintiffs in the lawsuit that forced the city to redraw voting districts notified the court yesterday they will not challenge the new map. Mayor Wu and the Boston City Council were forced to come up with a new plan after a federal judge decided the previous map may have relied too heavily on race. This weekend on the MBTA, the Green Line has no train service at underground stations that allows crews to conduct inspections of the tunnels. Shuttle buses are available, and the Orange Line is an option for alternate service downtown. And keep in mind, for 12 days, starting Monday, shuttle buses will replace trolleys on the Green Line B branch as workers focus on trap track upgrades on the above-ground portion. Today marks a celebration of black voting tradition in Massachusetts. Last year, the state approved a measure officially recognizing the third Saturday in July as Negro Election Day in Massachusetts. The event commemorates one of the earliest systems of self-governance adopted by the black community in the 1700s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. On a recent Wait, Wait, Roxanne Roberts sent a warning to the aspiring politicians posting workout selfies online. There's a lot of men who think that they look really good naked or without shirts, and somebody needs to disabuse them of this. I'm Peter Sagal. You never know when one of those guys will pop up on your screen, so stay safe by sticking to the radio. As we talk to Broadway legend Patti Lapone on this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Leon and Felix, a writer and photographer, show up at the Holiday House to Felix's family home along the Baltic coast and find a stranger there, moved in, smiling, making lasagna, and having a romance. Well, in the deep forest behind the house, a fire burns and also begins to move in. The film of fire won the Silver Bear Grand Jury Prize at the Berlin Film Festival. It is the latest film 
from Christian Petzold, the acclaimed German director of Phoenix and other films. He joins us from New York. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much. This film kind of grew out of the pandemic? Yes. Uh, during the pandemic, I was in bed because I was infected with COVID for four weeks. And I lay down with fever dreams and a script. And the script was a dystopia story. And I have lost everything, uh, any desire to realize this. Because I said to myself, when I will come out of this situation, I want to make a movie about life about uh, the youth, about uh, the desire, and about our fantastic world. Hmm. And I gather the films of Eric Romer and the works of Chekhov were an inspiration? Yeah, yeah. During this time, I lay down and have to lay down in bed. I was uh, also the, the main actress. Paula Bear was also infected, too. And um, there was a gift by our distributor from France. It was the whole work of Eric Romer. And in these four weeks, uh, during our fever dreams, we have could see all the Romer movies. The French people have a summer movie genre. People at the beach, uh, they start laughing. They find themselves, they find their identities. But we haven't got this in Germany. The Americans have a summer movie genre too. Sometimes it's a horror, horror movie. But uh, it's also something to do with youth and getting adult and find an identity and so on. Thomas Schubert plays the pompous writer Leon. May I tell you it's a little hard to like him? <laughs> yeah, I feel a little, little bit ashamed about that because in his character there are many, many autobiographical things of my, my own life as an artist. <laughs> and so when you don't like him, I feel a little bit ashamed. Well, I, I love the director. It's the, uh, it's the character that I have a problem with. Yeah. <laughs> but I must say, the actress said to me, hey, you are an artist too. You have made a, uh, also like, uh, like the character Leon, you have to made a second movie. Do you have any difficulties like him? And so... I said, oh, a little bit, of, well, I don't want to talk about this. And they say, what's the title of your second uh, movie? And I said, oh, it was Cuba Libre. And they said, uh, the book uh, Leon is writing in a fire. The title is Club Sandwich. Yeah? And Cuba Libre in a Club Sandwich, it's the menu. Um, yeah? A menu of artists who are not so sympathetical. Yeah? <laughs> and, and so I start laughing. And I must say that it was like a psychoanalysis treatment for me. They helped me with humor to forget my own artist past. So you chose the working title of the manuscript, Club Sandwich, as, since we're talking about film, I can call it an homage to your film, Cuba Libre? <laughs> yeah, it was not by conscious. It was a little bit like this. I have written this bad novel, Club Sandwich, I've written three or four pages yeah, from, from this novel because the publisher is reading it in the, in the movie. And it's, oh, that's right. And the, and the publisher has to read from the novel. So you had to write sections of this bad novel. Yeah, I have to write it. And it costs me three days because to write a bad novel in a good way, that you not start laughing directly. Yeah? So yeah, it's very hard. And uh, after three days of writing this novel, I have the feeling, hey, it's not so bad. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, you have the pride of authorship. You have made several films with Paula Beer, who, uh, who plays Nadja the young woman in the film. The writer doesn't really see her, does he? He has a crush on her, but doesn't really see her. This is a problem also for directors and their muses. They see red dresses, they see 
fantastic hair, uh, fantastic lips and so on, but they don't see the subjects. And this is something I can see in his in his behavior. He, he's standing behind windows, behind doors, he's watching her, but he never asks her something. For him, she's like Rita Hayworth or something. She's not real. And I think this is a male position in storytelling. Yeah. Nadia, in fact, asks a crucial question of the writer. Do you ever see anything around you? Yeah. To be an artist and to be a writer in Germany nowadays, you are a little bit like a 19th century artist. You and the world. Yeah? The world is especially just for you. When you are in parties, yeah? um, private parties, there are some people uh, standing always in the kitchen and discussing. And there's a big room where the music is, and there are people who are dancing. They have bodies, they have, they're happy here. Yeah? But, the, but, the, but the people in the, in the kitchen, they are talking about them. Say, hey, look at how, how she's dancing. And to, to leave, to come out of this kitchen prison, to, to reach the dancing floor, yeah? is something what Leon had to learn. Oh, my gosh. I don't think I've ever heard it put better. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you've done films, I gather, Water and Fire. Are you making films about all the elements? You know, I have a, a very hard Protestant education. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> and when something's very good, yeah? uh, I, I can't sit down and be satisfied and say, fantastic, now one year I want to sit down there, this was great, good work, I want to have a beer on a porch and look in yeah, something like that. So I have to say in the same moment when something is good, I have to do another one. Yeah? I have to go on. So I said after we make Undine, which was a fantastic time, I said, oh, uh, this is the first uh, uh, part of a trilogy, uh, this is water, the next is fire. But uh, now I think I lost myself a little bit in this Protestant thing, and I want to make holidays for one year. There, so uh, there is no third one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll look forward to the next one, whatever it is. <laughs> Christian Petzold, his new film, A Fire, is in theaters now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great writers often have notes for ideas that never quite fully bake. Those notes may not have become books, poems, or stories yet, but they continue to simmer in the writer's imaginations, waiting for the chance to catch fire and take form. Maybe that would be flambe. Well, our next guest can help me fix my mixed cooking metaphors. John McPhee, the New Yorker writer of 32 books over seven decades that have helped invent a form now called creative nonfiction on subjects that range from nuclear energy, the Alaskan wilderness, coal trains, the Mississippi River, tennis, basketball, and oranges. He's gone through notes and memories for his latest book, Tabula Rasa, Volume 1. John McPhee joins us from Princeton, New Jersey. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure. You say in this book you're particular about titles. You just don't leave them to uh, editors and publishers. So uh, why Tabula Rasa? Well, be 
it because I think it's a good title. I mean, titles aren't necessarily original. I, I just don't want an editor putting a title on, lopping a title off my work and putting one of his own on. Tabula rasa more or less means a clean slate. But uh, what are you doing in this in this book? Are you cleaning off your desk or are you floating ideas for the future? No, I think the idea is that the slate is clean because I never wrote these pieces. I, ideas stream by nonfiction writers just one after another after another, and it takes a long time to do one. So the ones that you don't do accumulate in your memory, in your notes, in your whatever. And uh, they remain tabula rasa because they're not written. Yeah. Let me get you to talk about a few. You write in tabula rasa about a job you had when you were 14 that sounds very grim. You're living in Princeton then, and you drowned fruit flies. How and why? Well, I worked for biologists in the biology department of Princeton University. I worked for four or five of them, but a great deal for Kenneth Cooper and his wife Ruth, who were geneticists. And they had fruit flies in little half-pint milk bottles, and they would anesthetize the fruit flies, look at the colors of their eyes and everything, put them back in the bottle, and then give the bottles to me to take down to the janitor's closet in the basement and drown the fruit flies. I wasn't popular with the janitors because I was no good at keeping the fruit flies from getting out. Mm. Has that given you any thoughts over the years about, well, mortality, revenge, any of that? Well, I have a thesis that I articulate in this book also, that when you die, you face all the creatures you killed in the world, see? and. When I croak, I'll be facing millions of fruit flies. You've got a whole short section here on basketball timeouts and why you don't like them. Why not? Well, because they seem to me to take too much away from the players. And also, they are programmed now to occur every four minutes. And every four minutes, this thing is called timeout on the floor. On the floor means stand by for a commercial. And this wasn't the case when I was young. And coaches don't have to take timeouts because the commercials are going to take timeout for them. Therefore, they can save up their timeouts to the end of the half so that they could take two or three timeouts within one minute's playing time or something. And the end of a basketball game is a, is a drudgery of, of uh, non-playing time and so forth. Yeah, it can be excruciating. I mean, the last the last two minutes can take 15. Yeah, exactly. That's my complaint, because I'm so old that I remember when that wasn't true. I'm, I want to read uh, some of your words to you, because there's a little section in here. I think about contemporary cliches. I'm just going to read it. It's called Generation P, and you write, we process grief. We process failure. We process trauma. We process cheese. We are Generation P, the word processors. Thinking through is not what we do. We have wrapped our heads around the most amazing things. Quantum mechanics, orgo. How did it go? Crushed it. What's your icon? A suitcase. It's full of assumptions. A suitcase is full of assertions. Instructions, amendments, concepts, and ideas. We unpack all that, then we wrap our heads around it. The pushback is not impactful. And will you be doing so in the future? Let me walk you through it going forward. As said, 
on NPR, we're interested in what's going to happen going forward. Well, NPR can take a joke every now and then, but what's your concern <laughs> about some of these cliches? It's not so much a concern as an interest in the development and passing of them across time. When I was a student at the uh, University of Cambridge, my academic supervisor would give me hunks of paper with a swatch of prose or poetry on it, and he wanted to know what decade of what century the piece was written. And the thing is that this is frame of reference, what's going on at the time. Frame of reference interests me a great deal. And so the, a frame of reference for right now, and maybe that Generation P is getting a little old already, if somebody read that, they'd know, they would say, you know, 2022 or something or whenever I wrote it. You're in your 90s. You write every day? Not every day, but most days. You always find something new to write about? Well, it's, I'm, <laughs> these tabula rasa pieces keep me going. They were a big division between, you know, the long pieces I did year after year. And uh, when I got into this five years ago about my daughter sent me this letter, said, did you ever write about a Extremadura, and that really started me off on this, and because uh, I I hadn't and always had meant to, and it feels different. I was full of anxiety every day writing in the past and having a terrible time getting through the day's writer's block before I could get going as a writer by five o'clock or something out of panic that I wasn't getting anything done, and these things are very different. I just uh, turn it on and look at it. And for one thing, they're short. And so very often you've done before you know it. Mm. This is pointedly called Tabula Rasa Volume 1, isn't it? Yes. You want to know why? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, the thing is that my idea when I did this was I'm an old man and to keep writing is to keep going, to keep living. And uh, I didn't want to publish any of it. I mean, in fact, I intended not to publish it. Okay, so, but then I began to itch to publish it. And I confided this problem with Joel Achenbach of the Washington Post, who was in my writing class here at Princeton in 1982. And I told him, you know, what can I do? I want to, I'd love to publish some of this, but the whole idea is not to finish it because you want it to keep you alive, you see. Achenbach says, that's no problem, just call it volume one. And that's what I do. And I have a contract for volume two, three, four. <laughs> I made a contract with Farrah Strauss that calls for another book someday. And someday after that, the whole idea is not to die. Well, we'll look forward to talking to you about <laughs> all of them. <laughs> Oh, that'd be great. We'll hang around for another five years or something. I don't know. I actually have uh, written 25,000 words toward the next one now. John McPhee, his new book, Tabula Rasa, Volume 1, more to come. Thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station 
and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Next at 10 o'clock, wait, wait, don't tell me. It is 79 degrees in Boston with some showers around today, maybe some thunderstorms, highs in the upper 80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New England Innovation Academy in Marlboro. Day and boarding school for grades 6 to 12. Free Innovation Studio Workshop, July 17th. NEIacademy.org. And the Cape Playhouse in Dennis Village, now playing Tony Award-winning musical Jersey Boys, the story of Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. Tickets at capeplayhouse.com. Japan's Hayao Miyazaki has been hailed as the godfather of animation. Films like Spirited Away have charmed global audiences while exploring complex themes. He won't give you the totally evil villain or the totally good princess figure. We all have a little bit of, of darkness and light inside us. I'm Scott Detrow. How Miyazaki's Studio Ghibli became a powerhouse on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.